Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Rowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation and psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Grace Giles. Grace is a recently qualified educational psychologist from Nottingham University and completed her thesis looking at the intersection of motivational interviewing and consultation. Grace is currently working as a qualified educational psychologist at Sandwell Educational and Child Psychology Service. We found Grace's perspective on motivational talk in consultation truly fascinating, and we hope that you enjoy listening. Hi, Grace. It's so good to have you here today. Hi, Jess. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Um, Yeah, we're really excited to have this conversation. I think it's going to be really interesting to hear about your views on kind of your thesis and everything that you've done but we won't get into that yet um it would be great to hear a bit about your kind of journey to becoming an EP what kind of attracted you to this role way back when maybe like starting out um yeah Yeah. what kind of influenced that it'd be really good to hear yeah yeah um so uh in terms of becoming an EP I think uh where did that start so I did my undergraduate degree in psychology obviously um did that and then sort of left university, didn't really know what I wanted to do um, and thought that I might become a teacher. Um, and so I thought to do that, I'm going to need to go and get some experience in schools and those kind of things. Um, so I ended up on sort of like a, a supply agency, like a recruitment thing um, to, where you go into different schools, like a kind of like a renter teaching assistant is how I describe it. So you sort of just go on loan and um, ended up working in secondary schools with some children with like literacy difficulties and things like that. Um, but the nature of the work was that you kind of get a phone call and then um, you kind of answer the phone sort of and say, oh, can you come here tomorrow or whatever? And that was kind of it. And I had, I had a phone call one day. Um, they just said, oh, Grace, have you got any experience of special educational needs? And I was kind of like, oh, like in my mind. Yeah. Like because I thought to me, special education needs was literally difficult to. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, no problem. They're like, can you swim? And I was like, yeah, I can swim. They're like, OK, so bring your swimming kit and um can you be at this school tomorrow? Whatever. I was like, okay, they were. So, so I got to this school, but it, it transpired that it was um, one of sort of Wolverhampton's designated sort of special schools for children with like severe and complex needs and predominantly autism. And so sort of turned up and I always joke that it was sort of straight in at the deep end because literally like, okay, get some get on, in you go, you're with so-and-so. I was like, and I ended up sort of staying there for, for two years. Um, and I think it was as part of that, process like I think it was do you know um like pecs like pecs like the symbols and picture exchange music, those kind of things um and we had to go as part of my induction we had to go on sort of training for it um and so the whole the whole one whole day was dedicated to like Skinner and I remember sort of vividly sort of sitting in the training and looking and thinking oh like I remember this guy from undergraduate um undergraduate degree and uh, I was like oh okay so and I think that was genuinely the first kind of like theory to practice moment if that makes sense um and I think from there I didn't I didn't really look back um in terms of just kind of got really interested was like reading as much as I could and just I guess there's a real um close link in terms of I could go home and read books and come into school and think how can I use this to help if that makes sense um and so it just started from there and then 
I was there for sort of two years, really, really loved it. Um, and then just it got to a point where I thought, oh, I think I can do a little bit more now. I've kind of learned certain things, got some skills, got some experience. I think I can go a bit bigger. Um, and then sort of started looking for jobs as an assistant psychologist and then landed one of those. And then I guess the, the rest was history from there. And it was from there to the training course and beyond, um, which, yeah, so it's kind of, kind of sort of fell into it in a way. But, it, um, you know, that, that was kind of how I, it came about. Um, and then it on, up on the course in Nottingham. Oh, yeah. that, and then and now in Samwell as an EP so yeah that's the that's the story I guess I'm smiling and Grace because it sounds quite similar to my experience <laughs> <laughs> and I think Jess can agree as well kind of being thrown into that deep end and that hands-on experience after your kind of psychology undergraduate yeah. degree and working with um, children and young people with complex needs and thinking about that kind of theory to practice and it's quite interesting because I think Skinner's thick theory is one that really you come into touch with first and before others I guess I'm just curious about when you kind of first got in touch with kind of consultation because I know Mm. I really necessarily when I was working in those specialist provisions and I kind of Mm. became curious about how we could work with the adults who are working with the children so was that something that happened when you were an assistant or was it when you were on the course or before that um I think as a teaching assistant, sometimes we would be like on the other side of consultations, if that makes sense. Like on reflection now, I could probably say that. But I think at the time, I'm not sure if I would have called it consultation. I just kind of would have been going about my day and someone would have told me, you need to speak to the clinical psychologist at the end of the day. Or you need to, you know, the ed psychs come in, you need to have a chat about so-and-so. And that that's kind of the form it took. Um, and then as an assistant psychologist, it was a bit more of a, a thing. But I think in my first introduction to it, um <laughs> it's probably gonna sound really bad I was I was coming to write up some some work um so like a summary of piece of work that I'd done and my supervisor kind of pointed me in the direction of um like an exemplar kind of report that she'd written kind of have a look at this and see what you how you're going to frame it and and I just saw the word consultation on her document I thought oh that sounds you know better than you know chat with so and so you know so I thought oh I can use I can use that um so I think I always saw Jake for me it was just a big word for a chat you know to, to begin with um and then I think certainly when I started the training course I think obviously it was one of the first things we're kind of introduced to at Nottingham is we have a module called um interpersonal and group skills which kind of is what, what it says on the team which is all about consultation and group processes and um I think it was there I was starting to kind of oh okay so this is a bit more than you know kind of just information gathering back and forth kind of you give me problems I'll give you solutions kind of things a little bit more to it um that I guess that's when it kind of became more of a thing for me. And I know you um, have a special interest in motivational interviewing um, and I'm just wondering when that was kind of first exposed to you, was that on the course when you kind of delved into consultation a bit more? Because I know from my perspective I didn't know anything about that until I kind of got onto the course and still you know learning about how that can be you know used in our work and especially in consultation what we're thinking about this evening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think I met motivation during as an assistant psychologist, but more in a um, like in like a like therapeutic type way. So like in conversations, in like individual casework, maybe in secondary schools and things like that, we might be used it. And it was um, sort of Kathy Atkinson's facilitating change materials, I think, which were kind of they were pointed in in my direction. So that, I think that's when I first came across it. Probably just sort of piqued my interest my interest a little bit, um, but I didn't. I wouldn't say that I knew masses about it. Um, but just you know, I was kind of using some of those materials to inform that work um, and then it again when we started at Nottingham on the course we had 
the interpersonal and group skills module, which is kind of where you're doing all about consultation and, and the process and things. But then also one of the other first things we do is a systematic literature, literature review. Um, and you can kind of choose a topic of interest and kind of follow your nose really in terms of having a go at doing a systematic literature review. Um, and I think I just thought, oh, I think I might look at motivation to in schools and like that. So I think it just happened that I was looking at those two things kind of alongside one another. Um, and then, you know, there's loads of research on MI about this kind of um, evidence-based kind of well-specified way of having a conversation about change. And then at the same time, we were looking at consultation in university and I was kind of, you look at the literature on some of the ed site consultations, it's actually quite like thin on the ground really. It was kind of what, you know, like there's, there's, um, there's some really good like standout papers and that I can think of, but the, there wasn't masses and I couldn't quite make it real, if that makes sense. Um, whereas I felt like MI did that and um, I thought we could, we've got this like evidence-based way of having a conversation about change. I think there's going to be something useful for us there for the consultation and these conversations that we're having in schools. And that was kind of, yeah, that was kind of the, the interest really. And I think when I um, heard you talk, Grace, at the DCP tech conference about your thesis, I think that's what, really captured my interest because I hadn't really seen anything on motivational interviewing brought together with consultation. And there was something about motivational motivational interviewing being grounded in quite a lot of evidence mm -hmm. that kind of made the consultation bit feel more accessible in some way. Or it was like, oh yeah, it makes sense that it would sit within this framework. Um, the way that you described it was really, yeah, really helpful. But I was just thinking as well, before we kind of delve a little bit deeper yeah. into it it would be good if you could explain a bit for listeners that maybe don't know much about motivational interviewing mm -hmm. um kind of what that is um yeah and how you've kind of learned about it that'd be really good to hear yeah, yeah I see testing me now <laughs> um so yeah what is it so I think broadly it is this this conversation about change I think in its first form it was kind of born out of um like applied practice in the fields of like addiction and things like that but I think it's kind of evolved over the years. It's much broader now. So uh, people are using motivation to in terms of like sports and coaching and education um, and uh, health. Sort of, it's here, there and everywhere. Um, and it kind of emphasises this kind of, I guess it's kind of like quite rejuvenating in a way. It's kind of way of being with people in interactions or consult, like consultation um, that has particular skills. So you'll have um, the, the ors, so the open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries, and they're kind of the technical skills in motivation to that you'll be using. And then you have your kind of um, the spirit, the relational kind of component of motivation to which is um, kind of your, your non-judgmental high empathy, you know, um, accurate sort of um, empathy and um, sort of deep listening, those kind of skills coming together. And then they'll also emphasize um, for processes. So it's, uh, and they're quite key to say that it's processes rather than like stages, if that makes sense, of, of, of this interaction, this conversation about change. So, and they talk about engaging, focusing, evoking, and planning. And they're kind of the four processes. And it's all of those kind of skills come together um, with, a, with a, a consultant or a clinician um, with a person about change. So in the field of addiction, it would be those kind of, um, clinical interactions between sort of uh, a psychologist or, or and you know someone who's uh, you know trying to give up um, alcohol or you know drink less those kind of things and it was just this it's this kind of I think it's born out of applied practice in that um there were kind of I think it, it wasn't necessarily theory driven I think it was like you know we're having we're meeting this in practice um we're seeing that this kind of way of being is seems to be more effective than you know maybe being more um 
you know, kind of coercive or directive or offering lots of kind of advice. Um, I suppose I'm fascinated to, to find out from you about what you make of this idea about in a clinical context, the person that you're working with directly is the person who somehow either has a problem, which they will acknowledge they have, or they'll be like, I don't really have an issue. Everyone else is the problem. <laughs> in the context of consultation, I suppose, there's already this kind of third dimension of I as say the teacher or the parent, I'm completely fine. Mm-hmm. It's actually this child that needs your help. And I was just wondering about how, how does it fit for you or how do you see it, this idea that actually MI has this really rich tradition clinically in mm. working directly with, you know, you know, clients or service users, that dimension of the adult really not feeling like they have anything that they need to change if they've kind of attributed the sort of difficulty to a within child factor or to a within family factor or the other way around. Mm. Um, yeah, just Grace, what you make of that whole idea? Yeah, oh, what do I make of that? Like, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, just a very quick sort of yeah. No, I think it's um, I think it's really interesting. I I don't know if I have any like answers in a way to that really, but uh, I think it's something that you can meet in practice, isn't it? Where um, and I think consultation can be uncomfortable in that way because it does put the emphasis on the adults, and sometimes that can be hard to say that oh, I'm the person that needs to change to do something, and then I think. The, the thing I sometimes find, I think I feel like we're there to serve the child, like that's kind of, I think, indirectly, you know, through the adults for the child. And that's kind of, I guess, the, the, the consultation, that's the kind of idea of it. Um, and so to some degree, you, I don't know, you have to kind of, you are to some degree going to influence the adults in that, in that way. Um, and you need them to be there and I guess the how you do that I think is the difference so I think how you are in that interaction is probably going to make the difference to how um I guess resi- resistant is an MI kind of word but how the the adult is going to be to that so I think if you do come in kind of organs blazing you know you need to do x y and z and this is wrong and for this child then I think that is problematic and you might not get too far <laughs> is my sense I don't know if that fits the bill's experiences um Whereas I think if you can communicate in ways, in kind of MI consistent ways, um, in kind of collab- a collaborative way to work with them rather than doing to them, um, I think, you know, that is, it's less scary for the people who are, you're kind of asking to work with. So I don't know if that fits at all for people's thinking along those lines. Or The, the other thing I was going to say, just slightly along those lines, is, is that that was an interesting thing in terms of, the study um, in terms of my thesis research because we I don't know about again your guys experiences but I feel like more often than not I'm consulting with Senkos or um, but you know sometimes a person is actually going to be doing the different thing could well be the teacher or a teacher assistant and then they've got to make that difference for a child so I think there's something there's a chain there you know. Uh, yeah it's really um, interesting to hear about kind of why there might be resistance to change and I guess one of the reasons which I've been thinking about and I'm sure Jess and Emma have as well is kind of what is consultation and different people define consultation Mm. differently and I was just wondering in your experience have you encountered that where you know people might perceive consultation as something different to what we think it is and that's maybe perhaps why they're resistant to it or yeah yeah that's interesting as well um I think on the whole I don't know if it's just the services I've worked in or or what I've not met that much resistance in terms of working consultatively in terms of like initiating the meeting and coming to the meeting and being willing to turn up I think if anything the resistance I might meet is in the interaction if that makes sense itself um but I think there's always kind of um 
you know, when you're trying to almost get them to agree to the consultative way of working, you know, I want to have this meeting. I think there's an onus probably on me to say why, really, why I want to work this way and sort of get them to buy into that process um, of what it's going to be and, and why I'm going to do that versus why I'm not going to just sort of, yeah, I think being able to explain that clue to the school and, and all the, the head teachers are saying, okay, whoever you need to buy into that process and, and getting everyone to buy into that. If you do that well, I, I think normally people will get on board with it, I think. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it's just like I say, the culture, the services I've worked in where consultation has already been kind of a running thing. So I've not had that much trouble in getting people to agree to, to come and meet with me to have a conversation. Um, just sometimes there is a slight emphasis on, could you just come and see so-and-so or could you just you just come and do you know some kind of assessment on so and so um and sometimes i'm just trying to pull them back a little bit and like so we just have a, a conversation first you know we just have and i think sometimes i don't necessarily always use as i've just done it there the word consultation i might sometimes just say can we just have a sit down and we'll have a conversation about it you know we'll work through it that way um yeah i think you've addressed like some of the things that we've spoken about as like a cohort um in mine and m's here and also us three and with other guests as well um, I guess I was thinking a bit about what you said in terms of the service and how much of an impact mm. that makes, because it's something I'm quite interested in generally. Um, do you think there's anything that the services you've been in have done differently that means that consultation is like, uh, I guess that there's like a unanimous kind of understanding of what consultation is? Because uh, part of why I imagine schools are more willing to buy in is because you feel confident in what you're delivering whereas I know that sometimes we can feel maybe less confident about what consultation is and that that affects how we do consultation mm-hmm. or how schools receive it if we can't kind of define it in a clear way and we've talked a lot as well about how many different kind of opinions there are on what consultation is and I know that you've drawn on some in your introduction to your um, thesis as well like Bill Urchel, Daniel Newman, Colette Ingram, Terry Gutkin, all of like those big names that kind of kind of talk about what consultation is. So I don't know. Yeah, this is a very long-winded question. <laughs> um, but yeah, your thoughts on kind of what you think consultation is or whether that comes from the services you've worked in or, or something else. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think of things that the service have done that we've probably all got together as like an EP team and, and said, I think we want to work in this way. And then sort of almost pitched that to the to the school leaders and to in the local area and kind of said you know this is this is how it will work essentially and it will you know because I think there are certain things to work that way you have to have you know for some of the consultations I need the schools to collect data and to come with me sort of slightly prepared you know so they'll have given me some idea of what we're talking about so I can maybe have a little read of it ahead of time and they'll bring I don't know precision teaching charts or something that we can something that we can you know look over in the consultation so I think just clear communication with the schools about those processes and I guess I guess as people do you know you pilot these things don't you and you check it out and you get feedback about how that works I think there's those systems things that need to be in place um in terms of actually saying what consultation is I, I don't know if I I think I probably could do better at this to be honest because I don't know if I always say I think as I've said earlier sometimes for me it's it's it will be you know a meeting we'll sit down it's, this is either a conversation kind of at the beginning of the meeting I might normally say okay you know you've got your expertise on the school the child you know I'm bringing some knowledge of psychology and this and we'll sort of put our heads together and sort of see where we go with this but it is quite informal I would say whereas you know I think I've, I've seen some stuff recently where people are sending you know 
clearer letters about what the process is and ahead of time and what they need from you for you know this amount of time because I think there is a risk and again I've been quite fortunate I don't think I've met this but that people think it's just going to be a five minute chat and therefore you know you get to the school and they're like oh I didn't realize it's going to be sit down for you know at least an hour kind of thing so I think there's kind of just the clear kind of pragmatic stuff that you want them to have and, and, and just there is a little bit that you need from them as well although sometimes I know teachers are really busy so often if, if they do come to the consultations and they have a vote then I'm not like you know I'm probably not as strict as I maybe I, I should be or could be on, on if they've got everything but it is helpful if if you've got that kind of everyone's kind of on board and, and can buy into it and then I think that's when the process can be most useful. I think that's something that we're all trying to work out <laughs> kind of what consultation is and how the best yeah. you know, way to kind of deliver it and I think something as trainees and even you know beyond uh, still you know trying to kind of grapple with that idea I know I see it in my service a lot I think the key thing and we'll come to your thesis because I'm really keen to hear a bit more about how you, <laughs> you went yeah. about that and um, obviously mm-hmm. we um, had a read and I think the key thing that struck me was about that kind of relationship and um, between the consultant and the consultee and how you speak about kind of the verbal exchange in it I would I'd be quite keen to know a bit more about that kind of relationship and you know what you think is key to that consultant and consultee relationship yeah no that's really that's a really good question I think just in in terms of the thesis I think what we we're hoping to do was to be able to look at just like real world kind of applied consultation in practice so we just kind of wanted to get EPs and say if you've got a consultation can I come along can I can I record it and just see what that looks like um so we just wanted to be as kind of naturalistic as possible and then what we had was these interactions this back and forth between the EP and the teacher and then we because I was interested as we've learned kind of talked a little bit about motivation tuning and how we could you know maybe use some of those ideas to make sense of consultations is anything there for us in terms of learning about it so we had the we had kind of these observed audio recorded consultations that were then transcribed and um, we had the coding schedule from motivation interviewing, which was used um, sort of an adapted version of it's called the MI scope which is like a sequential code for observing process exchange and I'm quite proud that I still remember the name of that um, and we made some tweaks to that and then what we're able to do is go through the, the transcripts and we get to pass it into like utterances and it's Quite a, quite a process but then you we coded every single interaction based in using this kind of adapted form of schedule so we we're able to look at you know the EP's use of questions you know whether it's an open question or a closed question their use of um, simple reflections and complex, complex reflections there when they were given advice when they were sort of I think we coded it as emphasized control because we tweaked some of the codes so it was things like seeking permission before they gave advice those kind of things and then we were also we also coded the teachers responses as well so that was um coded into things like uh, follow neutral so they were kind of like when they're sort of okay by and um thems and the ers and all those kind of things but also um something that's quite important in, in mi particularly in sort of clinical research MI, which is um sort of change talk so we were able to look at the the change talk that the teachers were kind of coming up with and that was change talk in terms of language and sort of towards change and also counter change talk so language that was away from change and that's kind of um teachers making the case to to, to order against doing something different essentially in the consultation so we essentially had this big kind of map of the interactions in consultation in MI terms and we could see what was kind of consistent with MI or not consistent with MI just what what it looked like and interestingly I think neither of the EPs in the study would have said that they were using MI no that 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 was one of the things that struck me you know they they would talk about um they talked a little bit about is it uh, so Wagner's 
interaction with geo systemic kind of framework they took like solution focused questioning those kinds of things but actually when we looked at it there was a lot of mi kind of consistent talk in the in the interactions um and the methodology that we used which was sequence analysis which was kind of um an idea that was given to me from my uh, research supervisor supervisor which is Anthea Gunford at the University of Nottingham there's this the sequence analysis allowed us to look at the back and forth in interaction so we could see when EPs were using this kind of talk it evoked this kind of response and so what that allowed us to do was look at you know how EPs evoke things like change talk and in MI change talk is in terms of like the the kind of hypothesis as it goes and it's that if you have a high level of kind of MI consistent talk is a good predictor of change talk and a higher proportion of change talk in a consultation would be a good predictor of actual behavior change if you've got the mi the ep is communicating in this mi consistent way getting lots of change talk that's a good that's a promising sign in the consultation in terms of them going on to do change sorry look can i just ask you for the purposes of people listening who may be just a tiny bit less familiar but really keen to know a bit more if you were just to give a kind of an example of what a teacher change talk that sounds like yeah I you yeah. know what that might look like but also that sort of weighing up against change if you had just a couple of examples just to kind of yeah. clarify yeah. what that would sound like if you were listening to a teacher or to someone else you were consulting with talking yes yeah yeah so in, in terms of that's really uh, really good uh, in terms of the the change talk so the change talk can be kind of subcategorized which probably get a little bit too technical so into um like statements like desire statements ability statements, um, reason, need, commitment, and taking steps. And so they're broadly, they're all forms of change talk, and they can go either to away from change. So um, so sort of maybe taking steps away from change would be, I've tried that, it didn't work. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think that might resonate a little bit with people might hear that sometimes in consultation. It's done that, tried that, didn't work. You know, try again. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then the a, a changed statement toward change, like a desire statement would be, um, I really just want to do anything I can do to help, something along those lines. Um, a commitment statement would be, um, I can put that in place, I'm going to do that at the end of this meeting, those kind of statements. Um, don't think of any more. So abilities tends to be kind of um, referring to their kind of how able they feel to do it. So sometimes that was feasible. So well, we could do that at break times or um, I've, I've had some training on X, Y and Z. So I think, you know, um, and those are kind of some examples of the, that's really helpful because I think even if you know you're listening now and you don't have the time to go and like work on MI but you're thinking gosh I could be listening out for these examples of change talk it's really brilliant just to have a couple of illustrations and I guess obviously the magic question is (laughs) that kind of eliciting change talk or how the consultant sort of responded to Mm -hmm. it or tried to kind of yeah, any examples that you give of, of ways in which EPs either elicited change talk or mm. were able to respond to it to amplify it in any way? Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, so it's interesting. So um, the the two predictors of change talk, I think, in the study were, and this was like where it was more likely than chance if the EP said this, they would get a response that was change talk, was open questions. So essentially, if you asked for it, you, you got it. <laughs> so there's something about careful questioning. Um, but it was open questions uh, as opposed to closed questions, I think, more so to get the change talk. And also um, facilitative utterances is what we coded it as. But th- these were like, this was in, kind of interesting because these were often just like buttons, you know, like, mm, okay, right. 
I thought, are these bees just saying, mm, and they're getting changed talk? And that was interesting. But I think essentially what was kind of happening in the interaction was the, the teachers were, were, they were already there. They were just, and they were just letting them go. Do you know what I mean? Again, I'm listening, keep going. And they sort of essentially talk themselves into change. You know, you know, they, they could make the case to or fro, but um, they kind of, they were going with it and the EPs kind of let them run with it. And the open questions, I'm trying to think, there was some that stood out. So there was like, I think it's like EPs use like the ideal kind of questions quite a lot, don't they? So like in a in an ideal world, in six months, where would you like to be? Those kind of things. And naturally, the response to that was just loads of desire talk. So like, it was like, I would like it, it would be like this. I would like it to be like this. We would put this in place. And so, you know, that's a form of change talk. And that was sort of one of the ways that... that and that way of hearing yourself say what way you want it to be and kind of really emphasise it rather than this is the issue, that's the problem. That Wanting to be really comprehensive, I guess, in a way and making sure we've understood all aspects of a, of a, of a situation. There is probably also the danger that we get too trapped into there's another feature of this and another feature and another feature. And it can actually kind of inhibit people from going, okay, I can't do anything about those things, but you know what, tomorrow I can do this in the classroom. Or I could put that out at playtime or I could make sure she speaks to so-and-so. And maybe that kind of emphasizing or nurturing in ourselves the idea that, you know, even very small changes can ultimately lead to something really quite massive. If somebody mm-hmm. feels like, actually, you know, I managed to do that and that's mm-hmm. had a little bit of a, an impact. I can now try something else um, yeah. and not to try and make it into the change talk has to be. I will be a completely different person tomorrow. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not that's not really what you're getting at at all, is it? It's 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 different. It's about how my behavior may change. Um in it, in it and, and I'll do something different in response. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's um uh, that's really interesting. I, I, like the they're the things they're saying aren't they're not huge leaps and bounds of you know interventions or or anything like that. Um yeah, it, it, and the interesting it just it comes from them. I think I think in terms of the the, the point that you made about um, sort of the admiring the problem thing, you know, and they sort of go, oh, and it's, and it's all of, of these things. I think sometimes when you like really listen to somebody, if 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 they feel that you're listening to them, hearing them, um, you, you I don't know for sure, but I feel like that might be reduced slightly. I think. Um, if you if you sort of hear a problem and then you're given a solution, which is probably what you don't necessarily you, you do want to work toward a solution, but obviously if you just start saying, Oh, this is the problem, and then I think sometimes the, the writing reflex in MI or or our natural response, because I think you come to this job because you want to be helpful, is to go, Okay, have you tried this? Have you have you have you done in a quite a direct way? Um and sometimes they're probably very plausible solutions that we're gonna but naturally I think the consultee's response is then to kind of go oh, but it's not really just that, it's this as well, you know, and just kind of, you know, that's not their solution. And, and that's when you get met with that. I think I mentioned earlier, like, the, for me, the resistance is in the meeting, if that makes sense, to those kind of suggestions and things. And then it, it, interestingly, in, in the study, one of the ways the EPs were quite skillful in this, and it did sort of sit quite nicely with some stuff in MI, was when they wanted to make suggestions or give advice or offer something, there was a way that they were doing that in a, in a kind of, that maintain kind of the collaboration, if that makes sense. So um, 
So in, in MI, they talk about the illicit, provide illicit sequence for more sort of plain English. It was kind of ask off for ask, I think they've called it more recently, which is kind of, there are going to be situations where you do want to, you do want to give advice and you probably have got, you know, you have done your doctoral training and you've worked in X, Y, and Z. You've got some expertise, you've got some knowledge. Uh, so you don't just sort of want to take your sit on your hands for fear of meeting resistance. But the way they did that was using something similar to that. So that often they were sort of, it was either directly asking for permission. So would it be okay if I suggested something here? Which is really simple, really. It's just like such a simple thing that, that maintains their kind of autonomy. And then they would suggest something of some description or whatever it was relative to the topic. And then they would then just essentially say, what, what do you think about that? Or have I got that right? Or, you know, how does that fit? And then you have, you know, I think it's much more of a kind of collaborative the teacher still got the autonomy you're able to share your expertise and they can make sense of that and it's much more of a kind of a back and forth a two-way thing that you're doing together so I think if you do it that way versus just sort of saying okay you you know more imperative kind of language which you must do this you need to do this you could do this without doing that I think then you're more likely to be met with that kind of resistance those kind of things I don't know I don't know if I'm that's kind of what we saw in the study but I don't know if that fits I think you definitely answered the question and gave lots more information which is oh, okay. really <laughs> interesting to listen to I think again when I was listening to you at the conference I think mm. that was something that really appealed to me as well the idea that mm. two things really the idea that using motivational interviewing and the way that you did the study it kind of pinpoints the like specific elements like consultation skills I guess that mm. actually are affecting change which yeah. I think sometimes is that resistance to doing consultation or like trusting in a process of consultation is that it's hard to know what's working is it working like is it leading to change are people just kind of nodding along and then nothing really happening and I guess part of what I was thinking about as well is that it does really empower and it prompts that problem ownership within mm. in the consultee, especially if they are using that sort of change talk all the time or mm. more often. And then I guess part of me is, is wondering about um, whether there's anything out there that you've read or whether this is kind of a gap in, in the literature at the moment in terms of bridging that gap between knowing that that change talk in consultation and educational psychology practice leads to change mm. yeah, behavioral change as in when there is that higher level although it can predict behavioral change I don't know if there's any research out there that kind of said yeah like it, it does lead to that or whether you're looking at it or thinking no about it. I don't I don't think there is to be honest and, and I don't think because obviously I'm I am sort of taking research ideas from MI and going that I think we can make sense of consultation using this and that can be helpful but I can't say for sure that it does apply in exactly the same way to educational psychology consultations. So I can kind of say, well, it maps onto it and there's this kind of consistency and we can say that looks promising because there's lots of change talk. But I don't think there has been a study yet that <coughs> that's looked at <coughs> like the, the MI kind of consistent behaviour of the consultant, the EP, and then seen the change talk and then been able to associate the change talk with a change in behavior I think that would be like that would be a really nice study to do <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely some research there I think I think the one tricky thing and, and this would be just interested if you if you want to do this as a study but in MI typically particularly for like the clinical trials and research and things they'll there'll be a focused behavior like um, less cigarettes smoked something like that so they have a very clear target and so it's quite easy to kind of not easy as such but you can begin to make that link so it's like am i consistent behavior change talk related to smoking or not smoking 
and then you can do a frequency count of this is how many cigarettes I smoked, you know, um, and then you can begin to make those links in a more kind of causal chain kind of way. Whereas I think just in sort of the messy reality of applied EP practice, it's not always a very specific behaviour that's necessarily sort of countable. Um, but I do think there's definitely ways you could do it. You, you could choose to be very specific about the behaviour and do it that way, because I think sometimes there are particular cases where you might be looking at something very specific and you could do it that way. Or you could be sort of other, another kind of measure. I, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, a target monitoring evaluation, I guess you guys, you know, uh, something along those lines where you could probably do something with that, maybe, in my mind. But I don't think there is, as far as I'm aware, I don't think there is anything like that yet. fascinated with the idea that you immersed yourself so fully in actual real tapes because I'm always quite interested mm-hmm. in this isn't and kind of a, a simulation it wasn't an analog situation yeah. this is like real consultations that happened yeah. and you didn't just look for broad general things like I was collaborating or you know like a kind of a mm-hmm. that sort of you went into the really micro analysis of yeah. I said X she said Y they said Z yeah. Do you feel that level of like, you know, really focusing on work, like even those things of like they were getting the the some of the change talk to just go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Do yeah. you feel it changed how you started to behave in consultations <laughs> afterwards? Did you start to get more, ooh, look at me doing that like little thing there? Like, did you become more conscious of what you were doing or do you yeah. just do the kind of more generalized, I'll go in and have my conversation yeah no that's a really um that's a really funny question I I don't know if I did it to myself maybe a little bit I think I do to a degree I hear myself saying certain things now and it's almost like you're like almost coding it in your head and it's a bit it's a bit annoying to be honest Uh, but when I was first doing the the code obviously it was like last summer or whatever I was literally having conversations with people and they would say something and I was in I think it happened not that long ago actually I was in supervision and my supervisor had taken a problem. I literally went, oh, I just so I was feeling uneasy about this. And then she just immediately went, oh, so you're feeling uneasy about it. And in my head, I was thinking, simple reflection. I was like, simple reflection, that is. I thought, it, but it worked. So I was like, it was good. And I was like, yeah, I was feeling uneasy about it. Um, and so I think I, there was a little bit of that. But I don't think you can get too caught up in the moment trying to, you don't want to have too, like, I'm kind of, hold the ideas loosely as a framework but I think also you, you can't be too like to a script in the moment I think you could be a bit risky just being really rigid if you were thinking like must ask open question to get change talk kind of thing I think it has to be yeah no such yeah. a good point but I think there's the danger of going so far the other way that you don't yeah. actually consciously try to practice open questions or you don't yeah. consciously try to yeah. do those things because you go too far the other direction Yes. I think that point that Jess was making about actually knowing that there are things that could be better predictors mm-hmm. of positive change mm-hmm. and that you can do you can do them mm-hmm. and you can do more of them. Yeah. I think there's some halfway house in the middle of perhaps, yeah. and I do think that point you made about actually just even one transcript, but it does really, really focus your you're like you're really much more mindful I think at the end of one and even as a teaching tool I am wondering about the benefit of even if you only just Mm -hmm. recorded one consultation Mm -hmm. but then you went back over the tape and you looked at us yeah I'm just wondering from your experience do you feel that yeah actually it did really help me make sense of the interaction between the teacher and the EP between the consultant and consultee in a way that maybe if I had I'd taken just much more broad statements or maybe people's reports of, oh, in that consultation, I was doing 
this, that, and the other, like self-reported. Yeah. Did it help you in terms of learning? Yeah. Yeah, those kind of interpersonal processes and consultation. Yeah, massively. I I think the actual just process of transcribing it for once, listening to it, uh, because, you know, just really listen to the recording and you you do have to listen to it over and over to transcribe it kind of accurately. And and then you're going through literally every single utterance and thinking, right, what's that? What's that? How are they using that language there? And then what's the spirit of that? How can I close that? I think going through it in such a nitty gritty kind of way was like a, a development activity in, in itself that made you really carefully think about okay how you use questions when you say things so I, I think definitely there's it's it's a, a good activity to do essentially um you know I think we do lots of like CPD for like kind of our content expertise like we're going to do a course on x y and z mm. but how much CPD we do for our process skills and our questioning and things like that and how often we go and say shadow each other because I don't even know if it would need to be I think it's quite daunting having yourself audio recorded, you know, and then going through it like that. I think it's helpful, but kind of a scary thing to do. But even if it was just having someone else observe and maybe tallying up, you know, your use of open questions, closed questions, reflections, those kind of things, and, and getting a sense of it that way. I guess I'm mindful that we've spoken a lot about the kind of verbal communication and the <laughs> yeah. changes. And when I was um, reading your thesis, and I know you mentioned it at the end about future implications about Mm -hmm. the non-verbal kind of exchanges and how Mm -hmm. important they are and I think that's really come to Mm -hmm. light um this past year where we've been doing our consultations online and we haven't necessarily been getting that and I know myself I feel they are very different um from doing them Mm -hmm. online um Mm -hmm. just wondering kind of what your thoughts would be in terms of thinking about research in that area or kind of any anyone listening to this about how they can use non-verbal exchanges in their consultations yeah yeah I think that that's a huge part of it because I think there's there's a lot like you say we've talked loads about language and I think there's a risk that when you just just focus so much on language I think it's helpful but then it is also like it comes with like a warning because I think there's the risk that you think you I can just say these things and therefore it will be good so if I, if I just ask for permission and I just wonder aloud or therefore I'm being collaborative and it will later out and whereas I think there's so much of it that is about the relationship and then I think that in MI they'll talk about the um, technical skills going hand in hand with the relational skills the spirit kind of component and so you can't just do the technical talk say ask you know open questions without the you know deep listening without the empathy without the kind of genuineness and compassion uh, and that can sometimes be hard to sort of quantify from a researchy kind of point of view but I think there's a lot of that I know you mentioned specifically about non-verb there's a lot of that sometimes that is non-verb you know that we're on like we're on zoom now and we're sort of smiling and nodding and you know so I think there's I, I think we do things I didn't I would say it's not something I looked at in the research but I think there is a lot of that that, that comes across and certainly the relational stuff going hand in hand with the technical skills that's important so that you're not just you know you could talk about how important reflections are but you, you don't just want to be sort of parroting sort of divorced from any kind of relational skills or you you don't yeah you don't sort of want to sandwich advice in just because I'm doing it this way because it's the way to be done but I'm not actually really genuinely listening or I think they're only it's only going to be effective if it all goes together and I think part of that will be the the non-verbal skills okay that's my kind of and just yeah just Grace in, in terms of any thoughts that you might have or any reflections you'd offer on your own experience about what have you noticed is is the same whether you do it in person 
versus mm-hmm. perhaps online? Are there things that are really quite different, whether they are verb? I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things I suppose, even with us this evening, we're all on mute so that we've got good audio, but you do then miss some of those, you know, verbalizations mm-hmm. or, or things that are kind of missing. Yeah, mm-hmm. just how has it been for you over? I think, um, I'm surprised actually, I think it's been quite good really virtually I don't think it's been as difficult as I thought it would be I think I think yeah obviously there's like technology dependence so if they're like cutting out and you can't really hear what they're saying sometimes or you're talking over each other I think that can happen quite a lot in meetings I'm like and and then you know sometimes that can be hard I think there's some of the sort of like the the soft stuff you do at the beginning you know when you're just getting a cup of tea and a biscuit and sitting down and like does that just like it's just kind of it's almost like the poor building just like coming in just I don't know how to describe it really I think I do miss that sometimes probably more so with probably have that more so with parents and things I think and just making people more comfortable just sort of I think sometimes doing that via video call and things can be a little bit more difficult yeah and and surprisingly because a lot of the like teachers and things and the same with my team actually because I've I've only met one of them in person yet for the whole service and I've been working since September but I feel like we've really built up a relationship in a way and that's you know goes to say well you, you can do it you know by teams or whatever. So. I guess I was thinking a bit about um, the feeling like Grace you kind of mentioned just then you know like to get them to feel comfortable mm. and I was thinking a bit about how I feel after a consultation or mm-hmm. how I did in the very limited experience that <laughs> I've had in person compared to now and I think there is something different actually in the the feedback like emotional feedback that you have mm. after even though it feels like yep I did the same thing like that was perhaps like I followed the same sort of process that I usually would I asked the right questions elicited some information like mm-hmm. that's gonna help towards this it was collaborative like etc but there is something for me after where it doesn't there's just this little bit of disconnect like relationally I guess mm. um like you say usually you'd go into a school um you'd like feel the atmosphere of the school often that's quite uplifting you know like you already feel like yeah this is why I'm here this is the school um I'm here to like help this school and and the people and the children and young people that are here and then you kind of come back into that after you go into like a meeting room or yeah like you say have a cup of tea which always is great (laughs) um so I don't know I was just thinking about that and I guess I hadn't hadn't really reflected on how I feel after um, mm-hmm. other than no- noticing that it's quite everything being online it mm-hmm. means that you can have a lot of back-to-back you know like a zoom call no space for reflection no like stepping away or change of environment which I know we've talked a bit about before but I don't know if that resonates with you Grace yeah. or Emily either yeah I was just thinking about what you're saying so I think like that that talk at the beginning or that talk at the end even where you just kind of meetings over not about that anymore you're just like oh what are you doing this weekend or whatever we've got my empty I don't know just oh, sound like there's anything really the the worst thing for me has just been te- technology probably so, so if if you know a parent hasn't been able to get on and it's like a joint meeting and then they're on loudspeaker with a school we've had that a bit and that's that's felt really tough you know um and sometimes if I haven't been able to see everybody I'm talking to, some, you know, and so I think the connection has probably been the main thing that's impacted the rapport, probably. Um, but I think we've done some just tele-consultations as well, so no video, just phone. And I think they've been, again, they've been, they've been quite good. And I think, if anything, sometimes I'm so tuned in to listening <laughs> that actually the, the lack of video has probably been helpful in some ways, you know, because I really have to listen, you know, just to the, 
the verbal stuff. Um, but then there's been times when maybe people's webcams have been blurry, especially if it's been quite emotional. I've been like, are you? Are they okay? Like, I can't, I can't quite tell if they're okay, uh, you know, or if they know they're they're not okay. So I think there is something about reading them. Whereas I think if in the room, I probably clearly know if they were, you know that difficult or not. I think the thing that this year has done for us all is to say actually there are probably multiple different ways of doing stuff that we get some gains with that and we lose a little bit Mm -hmm. but it comes back to our mantra about good enough and as long as the consultation is good enough it leads Mm to actually you know like the sort of I don't want to say life changing because it does change lives eventually Mm -hmm. but not this sense the change has to be all singing, all dancing tomorrow. I think that's so not real to what is going on in schools, in homes, in FE, you know, early years, whatever. I think it's, yeah, just tolerating that it's it's okay that it won't necessarily be exactly perfect or exactly ideal. Mm-hmm. As long as it's making a difference, that's kind of what, what we want to be able to do. And there are things that doing things online permits us to do that we wouldn't have been able to do in person. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. definitely things in person that we can't do online. You know, we've got a little bit of... A bit of both, yeah, definitely. That, yeah. That, I, I think what you mentioned earlier, Jess, about um, about just the back-to-backness, I've definitely done that. I'm trying not to do that because I think because I'm just online, I kind of see like, I don't know, seven slots or something th- throughout the day. And I think, oh, okay, yeah, seven consultations, that'll be fine. And I'm just like... And then, like, I've, you would never do that in a, in, a, in a typical day where you travel to the school and I'd probably do two three maximum probably and so there have been days where I've kind of had back-to-back consultations and at the end of the day I've just been like oh my god you know I just nobody talked to me I used to just go and be away and also you know the people who've got and I'm speaking to in the afternoon I'm kind of like turning up to the consultations like need to get my game face on and like be listening and be that all that all those things but I think there is a limit to what you can do so that's been a learning just a learning thing for me is just the consultations even though you could physically fit them all on your team's calendar or whatever just that is not sensible so it's a big good point to ask grace what her maybe one takeaway <laughs> message would be or yeah yeah so, grace what we take <laughs> what we tend to ask our guests before we um finish mm-hmm. um is thinking a bit about kind of a book or a video or a resource mm-hmm. or kind of critical learning moment in your kind of journey and um, not only as an EP and but with consultation or it could involve kind of motivation or interviewing mm-hmm. that you would recommend to our listeners to maybe go away and yeah, yeah. um I think the obvious one would, for, for me is probably for me is probably like motivation to me just in terms of the main textbook by Willem Rolnick I think that's a good read that you know there's some really nice like kind of real examples in there you know different kinds of talk and what it can look like and I think when I've been reading that, it, it does kind of, it feels real. And I think that's kind of what I was looking for as a trainee, was just something that felt real and kind of fitted with the conversations I was having in practice. I think there's a podcast as well um, called Talk It to Change, I want to say, which I think is Glenn Hines and Sebastian Kaplan. And that, that's motivation to you. So again, it's not necessarily educational psychology related, but I think there's loads of crossover and there's lots of really... I've got quite a few different episodes and there's lots of um, interesting things to listen to. But there's, there's two episodes that stand out. So there's one by Terry Moyers, which I think is really, really good. And one by Paul Armstrong, I want to say. Um, and both of those, just a, a really good listens, I think. And there's, there's loads on there as well that are also really good listens. But those two stand out to me, probably because of the research. So they will talk about things like change talk and the kind of language and, and the research and things and change. And it just feels, 
it feels very real, feels kind of very relevant to practice and stuff like that. So recommend those. Yeah, they all sound brilliant and sound like they're really useful and helpful. And definitely think I, it's really made me think today about thinking about that change talk and how motivational interviewing can be used with consultation, especially where there's such little research in that field. And I know Jess and I are really keen to kind of think about that a bit more so yeah thank you so much Grace it's just been amazing listening to you and especially thinking about where we are in our kind of trainee journey and you as a newly qualified DP it's yeah it's been just it's been lovely and just really containing as well for us to hear you know Uh, what comes about the the thesis and everything so thank you so much for your time no no thanks for having me guys it's been been lovely it's been nice to, to talk about it hope I've made some sense anyway of it